0: Well, beloved listeners, if a, a kid has a really crappy childhood plagued by domestic abuse, poverty, constant house moving and uncertainty exposed to the criminal underworld, the works, what do you reckon he might turn to to find an escape? Well, my next guest, Andrew Snedden, turned to history, specifically prehistory living among crimson sex workers on Queensland's Gold Coast in the 1980s, led indirectly to Andrew becoming a leading heritage consultant. And after attaining a law degree, he studied archaeology uh, because that was his real, real love. And now he's written a very unusual, moving, darkly funny memoir called Prehistoric Joy, Andrew, welcome to the program. Could you give me a brief summary of the life you you were thrust into, the circumstances, your family moves from uh, suburban Canberra to the Gold Coast? Why?
1: Well, you're right. I was born in Canberra in fairly comfortable circumstances and lived a somewhat beige existence in Canberra for a while. But then my mother and father divorced when I was about nine and uh, my mother married a good-for-nothing con man named Philip, and he put us in a a plane and took us to the Gold Coast where we very quickly found ourselves in a murky world, much more colourful than beige Canberra, but uh, it was colourful in all the wrong ways. We found ourselves surrounded by criminals, um, and my stepfather uh, sort of sunk deeper and deeper into this alcoholic world, Um, which brought out the very worst in him, and that manifested itself in domestic violence, a physical abuse directed at my mother.
0: And sometimes at you?
1: I was never... He never raised his hand to me. He slapped my older brother pretty hard a couple of times, but he never raised his hand to me or to my sister. His abuse uh, for us took a different form. We lived in... uh, I've honestly lost count of the number of houses that we lived in at the time, but he would throw us out on a whim... And um, that was the the way that his abuse most directly impacted me. So I found myself three times, for example, in a Salvation Army refuge for the homeless. Um, We went from uh, this sort of middle-class existence in Canberra to the the depths on the Gold Coast.
0: I, I like this line of yours. Philip liked houses, but he didn't much like paying the rent on them. So, of course, the Gold Coast was already a pretty seedy place.
1: I think so. You know, at the time of course it was selling itself as uh, bright golden beaches and sunshine and happiness and and joy, but the Gold Coast that we knew was uh, it lived in parallel and separate from that world and it was it was pretty horrible, you know, there were illegal casinos, there was uh, violence, people went missing or showed up with black eyes because somebody had a beef with somebody else. Uh, That was the world that we lived in, and as kids, we we just sort of learned to not close our eyes to it, but to avert our eyes at the right time, and to keep quiet at the right time, so as not to antagonize and not to draw unwanted attention.
0: A very sinful place, and paradoxically, a hotbed of fundamentalist Christianity,
1: Yes, bizarrely, and uh, the Gold Coast still votes uh, very conservatively in elections, and I've never quite been able to work out why, because the Gold Coast we knew was uh, drinks and parties on a Friday night through to Saturday night, and yet just uh, 10 minutes down the Gold Coast Highway in some converted basketball court, you would have a fundamentalist preacher thumping the Bible, telling us all um, how to behave and how to vote.
0: And your family actually went to Pentecostal churches?
1: We did. We sort of, um, after some years of being dragged from pillar to post, we sort of collapsed like uh, shipwreck survivors on the beach of a desert island in a Pentecostal church. And um, it provided us with a level of security. And I must say, I found, um, I found it for a few months there to be really a nice place to be. But my stepfather had other things in mind for that church. He was... Uh, he was the archetypal conman, and uh, he saw some easy money in that church. And every time the collection plate went around, his eyes were glittering with uh, envy.
0: <laughs> well, for a grifter, he recognised the potential for grifting on a grand scale.
1: He certainly did. In fact, his father was a Church of England minister in India in the in the terminal days of the Raj. So I think he might have learned the wrong lessons from that uh, relationship.
0: And did you witness or participate in speaking in tongues, you know, the full thing?
1: Oh, yes, we witnessed that. We'd see, uh, it was quite sad. Now I look back on it, people hobbling up with arthritic knees, um, praying to God for, for uh, healing. And they would fall back speaking in tongues and get up and sort of skip back to their seats. But 15 minutes later, you'd see them hobbling back out to their cars, not healed. But uh, I guess they got 15 minutes of respite.
0: Now, at some point in the middle of all of this, you seek out history. Tell us what happened. Tell me about your miracle conversion.
1: (laughs) Yeah, this was a better miracle conversion than the Pentecostal one. Funnily enough, I was chatting with one of the mums at my son's under 10s soccer training the other day, and she had read the book and she said, "Um, why did you not just run away? And I didn't really have an answer for her. Of course, at the age of 14 or whatever, where are you going to run to? How are you going to run? But now I've thought about that question a a bit. And I think the answer was I did run away. Every time I picked up a book, I ran away. I ran away to the, um, the Roman empire or to Egypt at the time of the pyramids. So history and archeology span became an escape. And I think it was sort of impressed on me by my mother. She grew up in Western New South Wales and Western Queensland well, they didn't have a high school, so she finished primary school and that was it for her. And she always carried that as a, a bit of a, a shameful thing. She was always embarrassed by it. So on us, she always impressed the strong desire to be educated. And for me, those things came together in the form of uh, a PhD in archaeology
0: in the end. Now, it's prehistory in particular that uh, will capture your imagination. Define the term for the listener.
1: Well, it's an easy one, really. Um, History is when humans started to write, and prehistory is the time before writing. Certainly in the old world, capital O, capital W, it has a prehistoric, has a sort of pejorative or derogatory sense in somewhere like Australia, so we don't use it here. But uh, in old world archaeology, prehistory was humans before writing, which is most of the human experience.
0: There's a vivid moment in the book when you're... um you're among the the library shelves at university and you see a a book about Aristotle.
1: I remember this. I do remember this vividly. I was at the University of Queensland, a first-year undergraduate, and um, this is back when university libraries had books, not computers in them. And I, I walked down the aisle and there was a book, a translation of Aristotle, one of his works, and I remember pausing and taking it down and being struck by the fact that you really can get into the mind of a human who lived over 2,000 years ago. You can pick up a book and read words that they wrote.
0: But and in, in the period before that, there were fewer clues because, well, there's no writing.
1: Exactly, fewer clues. I say we, we're left to look through a keyhole at the banqueting hall. So what um, what we're left with is, you know, the mute stones bricks and mortar, that sort of thing, which, I mean, a book about prehistoric joy might sound fairly uncontroversial, but in archaeological terms, I'm actually committing something of a heresy because um, for some decades now, it's it's been the strongly held view that you can't try to get into the minds of our prehistoric ancestors without demonstrating statistical relationships between artefacts and places and things, whereas I've rejected that, and I think that there is a universal experience of happiness and I think we're entitled to look at, for example, a hearth from Cyprus that's 4,000 years old and say, people were happy in front of this place. They probably told stories, sang songs, ate food and went to bed replete, thinking life's pretty good.
0: So throughout history, as you you write, around 99% of the people got up, went hunting, came home to their families and uh, told yarns around the fire.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Of course, we got more and more socially complex, to use an archaeological term, but at the most fundamental level, humans are humans and they enjoy a good
0: laugh. You know, I used to say that if an ancient Egyptian wandered into the studio here at Radio National, we could have a pretty good chat. Now, I know he's not prehistoric, but... I know the sort of emotional life that Egyptians have because the hieroglyphs tell us that, uh, well, they raise questions, are the gods true? Why don't the kids do what I tell them? Will I fall in love? I mean, we're all humans and always have been.
1: I agree. I love that. Yeah, when when humans did start writing, of course, the first things they wrote were contracts and tallies of things, but they moved very quickly to love poems and stories about their children. Humans are humans, and and I agree with you. We could transport someone from ancient Rome or ancient Greece or Egypt into our studio today, and they'd be surprised by the gizmos, but we we could connect very quickly over a a cup of coffee or something.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, you and I have a great and particular affection for the Etruscans. I admire the Egyptians, but the Etruscans seem to me an a very likable, even lovable people. Tell me about your in- interaction with the Etruscans via Cyprus. Oh, well, the
1: Etruscans, they um, lived in the Italian peninsula before, the Ro- well, at the same time as the Romans, but the, the ancient Romans went on to conquer the Etruscans and intermarried and outbred them, sort of. Uh, and so the Etruscans became this, this memory even to the ancient Romans. Funnily enough, the Emperor Claudius wrote A 12-volume history on the Etruscans, which sadly hasn't survived. But they were even a fascinating, um, mysterious people to the the people of ancient Rome. We don't really know where they came from, or at least for a long, long time, we didn't know. Um, the, The historian Herodotus, writing in the 5th century BC, thought that they were a migrant group from what is now Turkey. And he was criticized for the last two and a half thousand years for being so naive and coming up with this sort of fantasy. But DNA tests now suggest that the Etruscans really did migrate from Western Anatolia. What makes them special to me is that where the Italian peninsula and the ancient Romans in particular in their art tended to show gods, especially gods thumping other gods on their heads or or (laughs) humans in (laughs) battle scenes, that sort of thing, the Etruscans incorporated in their art something that's surprisingly rare, Husbands and wives, arm in arm, clearly sharing affectionate moments.
0: I've got an Etruscan sarcophagus at the farm which shows exactly that. A great lump of uh, half-baked clay, but there's the father or the husband with his arm around the shoulders of the wife and it's it's deeply moving.
1: I agree Um, and I, I feel absolutely entitled to be moved by it. I don't need a statistical analysis to to validate my opinion that these people are clearly in love and sharing affection, and that love is is a romantic love as well as a family, a familial love.
0: And here's this paradox for you that uh, love was something in short supply in your world, but you find it in the past.
1: That's right. Um, I use the sarcophagus of the spouses as a as a distinction to be made with the situation that my mother was in. She would also lie on the lounge with uh, my stepfather's arm draped over her and they would watch TV together. But there was always this undercurrent of anger and we would tippy-toe around the house so as not to make Philip, my stepfather, angry because you just never knew where that might end up. So I I used that sarcophagus of the spouses as a a way of showing what actually alcoholism and domestic violence takes away from a family. I knew that it was out there. I knew that my friends had parents who were in loving relationship and I knew that I was missing out on
0: that. I I know you've learned from your studies that while different societies have loved and cared for kids in different ways, there's a universal happiness in the notion of family. I believe
1: there is. So I did my PhD on the... Prehistory of Cyprus, the island in the eastern Mediterranean. And there's a wonderful uh, ceramic vessel which is not quite 4,000 years old. It's a big bowl, you could barely put your arms around it. And around the rim, the potter has fashioned these little figurines, little figures. And it starts with uh, a man with his arm around a woman standing up, and then it moves to the woman with a swollen belly. She's clearly pregnant. And the next one is that same woman with a little pellet of clay between her legs, which is she's giving birth. And then the next one is the husband and wife holding hands and holding the hand of a small child. And it just it just screams affection. It says, this is what has made me happy, a family.
0: You're and looking at an animated film in pottery. Yes,
1: it is. It's a, a storyboard of, of some sort.
0: How charming. And... Uh and you wonder what what archaeologists of the future would interpret about any of uh, well, your many family homes?
1: Well, probably not not very much. A lot of them have since been demolished, the Gold Coast being the Gold Coast, and big high-rise buildings are on on uh, the spot of some of them. but if if they did um, excavate the ones that survived, they wouldn't find anything much of the emotion that I experienced. They might, They might be able to form the view that um, some of the flats and apartments that I lived in were sort of lower socioeconomic, but they couldn't draw many more bows from that, I'm afraid.
0: You and I have uh, lots in common, some of which I was telling you off air. And one of the lessons I learned from uh, an unhappy childhood was not that it was harder to love, but it was harder to be loved. Do you understand that?
1: I do I do it's a that's a tricky one I um I learned how to close myself off I think that's perhaps what you're getting at I you, you learn to be wary you learn to be cynical about expressions of love and affection um, and you learn to sort of compartmentalize different emotions so very difficult to explain but you you put you say to yourself, all right, that happened and it was really bad, um, an expression of love was directed towards me that turned out to be insincere, well, I'll put that in a box and I'll put it to the side and I'll just move on.
0: What became of Philip?
1: Well, he died a few years ago. We're not entirely sure, but our um, online sleuthing says, after he had been, uh, af- after we'd shut the door on him, uh, he moved to New Zealand and married another lady and this guy, this petty criminal who'd been caught up in all sorts of illegal activities opened a tea shop in a small town oh in New God. Zealand, of all things. Uh, but he's very hard to find online. But we do know that he died at about the age of 79, which, which just astonishes me. If you could have seen the amount of alcohol that passed his lips on almost a daily basis, you would have sworn that he wouldn't make it past fifty.
0: You know, I had a a very brutal stepfather who tried to kill me on more than one occasion and I've never been able to forgive him. Have you been able to forgive your Philip? No, no, I
1: haven't and I won't. Um, I'm sure there are therapists, or there might be therapists listening saying, well, you can't move on without forgiving, but I've moved on and I'm quite comfortable not feeling very good about that man. He did terrible things and I feel that Uh, forgiveness is just a little bit too easy for him. No, I don't forgive him.
0: One of the things is, of course, is that your mother kept bringing him back into the family. Do you forgive her for that?
1: That is a very difficult question. Uh, Yes, I do. Um, I have to admit that I carry some resentments. My mother time and again exposed us to some pretty awful people and pretty awful circumstances and would go back and back and back to my stepfather. But I'm a bit more educated now on emotional codependence and the financial dependence that she, she had towards my stepfather. There were all sorts of things going on. I also think that there were undiagnosed mental health issues that a small child never could have really appreciated. So with the passage of time and frankly with the writing of this book, I'm, I'm certainly more understanding now. Uh, of my mother's actions but to the very last day um, she died a year and a month ago to the very last day there were unspoken resentments that that had to sort of remain unspoken otherwise it, it would have been an awkward conversation let's put it that way
0: once again eerie parallels in both our lives Now. Given that I usually hate invading a guest's privacy, but you invade your own so spectacularly, I have to finish by asking, are you happy now?
1: I'm very happy. In fact, I've been happy. Uh, We uh, saw my stepfather off when I was a young fella and the uh, last twitches of the dying beast that was my... uh, that family relationship ended when I was about 16... And since then, I've been a happy chappy. I've, I've always been quite positive. I've always taken on board that old, um, that old maxim that uh, good things happen to bad people all the time and bad things happen to good people all the time. And once you're reconciled to that unfair fact, then you can just get on with life. And so I've always adopted that philosophy. I'm happy. I'm married. I have a 10-year-old boy who's a delight. I uh, have a great job. And uh, I'm happy.
0: Happy chappy, you said, and uh, but not happy clappy. I wonder, no. any religious beliefs that have survived?
1: No, I have no religious beliefs. Uh, I, being an archaeologist, I have dug up quite a few skeletons, <laughs> I must say. Uh, the oldest one, I think, was about 9,000 years old, long before any Old or New Testaments or any other religion that we're aware of. Uh, if there's a heaven or hell, I don't know where, where that person would be. No, no, I'm a humanist.
0: Good on you, Andrew, and you're also a very fine guest. Andrew Sneddon, archaeologist and heritage consultant, is the author of Prehistoric Joy, and it's published by the University of Queensland Press. Thanks, Andrew.
1: Thank you, Philip. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.